This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Eric. Hello, everyone. Hello. And welcome to our, uh, as Tam said earlier, our belief circle. Yes. To say Lovecraft belief circle? <laughs> uh, Vingy belief circle, maybe? Uh, this is Rainbow's End by Werner Vingy. Is that how you say his last name? I, I think so. I'm, I'm nearly yeah, positive that's so. correct, yeah. I think the narrator of the audiobook, the Macmillan audiobook, said it slightly differently, but I'm not sure how he said it. Mm-hmm. Vingy, I think, is what he said. Vingy. Werner <laughs> Vingy. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> that sounds right. We'll, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> yeah. And I'll put polka music at the beginning. So this is unusual. This is an unusual book because Eric picked this book. Well, I didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I said was I found this. Uh, we read this book in uh, a monthly reading group that I participate in. Uh, it's a diverse group of people. Uh, with, in terms of their intellectual backgrounds and their reading habits, but obviously they intersect in having a shared interest in the subject of this reading group, which is fantasy and science fiction considered uh, not only as entertainment, but sort of from a theoretical point of view. As you could imagine, having people who are an insurance adjuster on the one hand, a radiologist, a computer scientist, a librarian, um, a city manager, I mean, a very diverse group of people. Um, it's rare that we find a book that we all like. Hmm. This turned out to be a book that we all walked out of the room liking, but we didn't all walk into the room liking. And it turned out that a lot of the things that people didn't like although they were different things, we recognized sort of fell into the general category of things that you could like if you realized that this book was part of a conversation with other science fiction books. But if you just read it as a book on its own, then there was a whole lot of stuff missing, and people didn't like having that stuff missing. So as the conversation filled in the missing pieces, um, one person after another said, oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. And by the time we were all done, everybody liked the book, Mm -hmm. which kind of meant that this was, at least in our estimation, there were about 15 of us there that night, it sort of meant here's a book that, if you really are a reader of science fiction, you could think it's terrific. Hence, the fans give it a Hugo. But if you're not really a reader of science fiction, despite the fact that it's an award-winning book, you really might not like it. And I thought that was sort of a very fascinating object lesson in the ways in which we bring our backgrounds to, uh, to our reading. So that's why I mentioned to you guys that I thought this might be a a fun book for us to talk about, what it's like to, to try to read. Well, uh, I, think, I, I think you're absolutely right. There, there's definitely some stuff you have to know to 
fully understand the, the, the conversation that's going on. Um, but I, I am coming into this book absolutely, like you said, I'm not super impressed. Um, I, I think there's a lot of great ideas in it, um, and I didn't like it very much. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know where we'd like to go with this, Jesse. <laughs> I, I could try to point out well, Jesse is one how of those people that conversation be connected previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well he, the book that it reminded me most of for plot is Neuromancer. Um, it's got a uh, some sort of third party outside outside of uh, the main character's sort of point of view that wants somebody to do pull off a heist for them, and we've got that in this book. We've got a, a heist, and it's got a lot of the sort of the cyberpunk technology in sort of a cyberpunky era, but the attitude's different, and uh, I'm, uh, the plot obviously isn't exactly the same. But there's a there's a I guess the main character is Robert Goo in this book, and he's he's a, a disabled guy who becomes enabled, right? Just like our main character in Neuromancer, and there's I, I thought that that was sort of one of the things he, uh, Vinji was going for. Um, I agree. I mean, there's lots of other stuff. The r- the rabbit character I think is you know <laughs> that's just. Uh, Bugs Bunny, uh, Bugs Bunny, <laughs> and a and a combination of you know uh, Alice in Wonderland's the rabbit and such. Yeah, well, the, the um, rabbit character is fascinating to me. Um, unfortunately, I have not finished the book, and I apologize to you guys. Um, I just got really busy and was not able to finish it. Um, so, you know, take that into I account. I don't, I don't know how this all ends spoiled. up, <laughs> but the rabbit was fascinating to me because um, they, they hired the rabbit. Because of they want to break into this bio lab on on the way to preventing the use of I, I think it's a virus that um, allows mind control, and that that was a really interesting thing. But what was what appears to be happening at the point in the book that I am is that the rabbit is using his own kind of a he's very manipulative in gathering his crew to pull off this heist. Um, and he's, he's using his own mind control to prevent this other mind control. Practically he's, he, the way he talks to people is he, he convinces them that what he needs is what they need. So it's like Vinji introduces a character like, you know, Robert Goo, and then, um, kind of cements that character. And then this rabbit guy tries to manipulate those people into doing things that they wouldn't normally do by make convincing them that what they what he needs is what they need which is you know like a form of mind control and that, that's about where i'm at right now in the book i'm a little over halfway through so um i think you're getting the reading right personally oh good. okay great i think they call it affiliances when uh people are cooperating around the world to achieve whatever goals they're going for uh-huh Right. Yeah, collaboration. There was a lot of collaborative. Yeah, that's interesting too. That kind of connects into the whole thing too. Uh, one of the things uh, Juan and uh, Robert Gu are collaborating on a project. Um, it seems to me that uh, 
Jesse Scott, you're, you're you're saying two sides of a central issue in this book. Uh, I do think that the plot is a lot like Neuromancer. I think you're right, Jesse, that it has a very different tone. The end of Neuromancer is utterly tragic. When you hear that that laugh off in in space. Uh, when the the avatar of Case is walking on the beach and he never saw Molly again, <clears throat> you know that there is no freedom, no liberation from life. Uh, once Neuromancer has awakened to consciousness, um, Dixie Flatline is going to go on forever, although the only thing he wanted was to be erased. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a noir book. It's a, yes, it very much is a noir book, and, and the tone of the descriptions of the cityscape and everything fit right in there. It's a perfect word. This book ends with the line, um, something like, what if I could have it all? Mm-hmm. Yes, that, what if I can have it all? Um, somehow, at the end of this book, um, Robert Gu has been so rehabilitated and so sees the possibilities of the future in this world in which we've adapted ourselves to our technology and vice versa, that instead of never having the possibility of liberation, he sees the possibility of utter liberation. Now, the character behind that noir tragedy is Neuromancer. It's the artificial intelligence that wakes up. I would like to suggest to you that Rabbit the character that most um, attracts you, Scott, that Rabbit is also an awakened intelligence. That Rabbit is not, in fact, a person. Yeah, that seems to that seems oh. to be the implication. Well, you you say um, you say you're proposing that, so it's not clear in the book. He doesn't say this is who Rabbit is. It's never clear, but hmm. I think there's a way to figure that out. Um, this is hmm. sort of an English teacher way to do it, but mm-hmm. um, the. The book is told in what's called free and direct style, um, which you know means that although the narration is third person, sometimes the narrator is coming in through the thoughts of a single individual. Like uh, he walked into the room, he had never seen such a beautiful palace before. If only the people who had built it had had morals that <laughs> matched their aesthetic sensibilities. Yeah. Now, that last sentence isn't spoken by the narrator. That next last sentence is the narrator speaking through the mind of the, of the character who's making an observation as he's in the room. So there's no he said, she said, there's no quotation marks. But we know that we have freely gotten into that character's mind. This is called free and direct style. I think this is uh, probably very similar to what Philip K. Dick does for the most part. It, well, it's it, it's in fact an it, it's an enormously uh, common style. It's used yeah. again and again and again. Um, but it's, it's in third it's, person limited omniscient, like another word for it. Well, third person limited omniscient um, does that, but it does it with only one character. Okay. Yeah, if it can change to whatever whatever point of view that exactly, then then uh, there's more more control control in telling the story without revealing necessarily what. A person's word thoughts are right. Well, that, that's the key issue. What kind of a contract you're making with the reader? So, in uh, in a story in which you have just third person limited, um, which which is what Tomahome is suggesting, um, anything that the speaking 
anything that that one limited character, the character you can go through, um, doesn't see, you as the reader don't mind not being told. Um, that's why, to slip into the first-person case, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, we're not supposed to mind that we don't know what it is that Holmes is thinking when he picks up a clue because everything is observed from Watson's viewpoint. And if Watson doesn't know, we don't feel cheated that we don't know. But if it were free and direct style and we didn't know what, Watson, what Holmes is thinking when he picks something up, we'd figure that the author was cheating us and not giving us the chance to compete intellectually with Holmes. So this control over how much you uh, allow uh, getting access to the thoughts of one character or another is crucial in shaping the reading experience. In this book, we get into Goo's character. We, we get to see through, the, through Miri, um, his granddaughter. We get to see through many, many characters. But on page 55 in my copy is, I think, one of the rare times we get to see through Rabbit's eyes. And it says... Uh, so it goes, uh, this is where Rabbit and uh, the, the Great Lizard are meeting in Pyramid Hill, the amusement park, uh, around the kids. They're you know, trying this recruitment issue. Of course I share your charitable motives. The Rabbit gave the Lizard his most dishonest leer. But you cut him off just when he was looking at someone especially interesting to me. Um, I have provided you with a most excellent affiliance. There's that word, Tomahome. If you want my continued support, you must cooperate. Listen, you, I want the boy to reach out for himself, but I don't want him to be hurt. Lizard's voice trailed off, and Rabbit wondered if Chumlig was finally having second thoughts. Not that it mattered. Rabbit was having fun, spreading out across the Southern California social scene. Sooner or later, he would figure out what this job was all about. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you read that thinking, as I think we do the first time through, that Rabbit is an avatar of a human being, just the way the lizard is an avatar of this Chumlig, a human being, then the sooner or later he would figure out what this job was all about is the narrator sort of commenting on what this guy is like. But if you realize that we've actually seen nothing here about his personality, we know nothing about him as a grounded human being, but only as an intelligence involved right at that moment in pushing this particular job, you know, getting someone to commit a heist. Um, what we can see is this is a character who is identical to Neuromancer. This is just something that woke up and wants more information, wants more control. And this spreading out across the so Southern California social scene isn't a metaphor. For, an, for a being that exists only virtually, that's exactly what he's doing. So Except, if you're really alert early yeah. on in the book, we can notice that, that this isn't a person at all. And what I'd like to suggest, going back to your first point about the comparison with Neuromancer, Neuromancer violates the agreement with Dixie Flatline and gives us that terrible, terrible ending. Um, Rabbit, in fact, fulfills all of his promises and leaves the scene, just as Neuromancer leaves the scene, in such a way that it is, in fact, possible for a former Alzheimer's patient to say, what if I can have it all? 
Uh, except it's, I think it's it's a benevolent it's a benevolent yeah. individual. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons I'm less impressed. I, I have a uh, of an attraction to to the the dark the dark ending, but I also think that there's there's a a missing um, MacGuffin in this sense. I mean, he says I don't know what this job is all about yet. Right? He he knows that he wants this power, which is. Uh, I guess that you've got to believe me. The, uh, that's the MacGuffin, right? The the power to make people do what you want, and uh, I assume that would be useful. <laughs> um, maybe a lot of people would be after that, including uh, you know a, a new AI. But in the case of um, of uh, Neuromancer, it's a it's a it's just one of many AIs, and it's trying to free itself from slavery. Right, it it's got a gun to its head, and it has to get that gun turned off if it's going to be able to be free. And in that way, it's, it's. I think we understand from the ending. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have interrupted you. No, no, I'm done. I think we understand from the ending of Neuromancer that that Neuromancer is leaving the Earth. He is the only AI on Earth. It's just uh, that once he comes fully awake, he realizes that there are other such machine intelligences in the universe. I, I so think he's there the are first other AI Earth. I think there are. I think there are other AIs, um, like Switzerland was full of them or something. They use them for no. I mean, that's the point something. is that he manages to. No, he manages to to join with Wintermute, and that allows them sort of to have critical mass to get fully awakened and f- liberated from humanity. That, that's the point. That's why they need to break ice to get past that encryption, to get around the Turing, that shotgun that's wired to every mm-hmm. AI's head. There are AI's, but these artificial intelligences don't ever get up to the capacity for self-direction. Right. And that's what Neuromancer wants. So he becomes the first one on Earth when he manages to get around the security and merge with Wintermute. Right, he, he has that, a very directed goal, and I, I I feel that that's what this novel is really missing. Is it feels like, yeah, it's inspired by Neuromancer, and yeah, it's, it's got this, and wow, look at all this great uh, idea tech, right? And it is great for that, but it doesn't feel like it's got that that real, you know, let's we've got an object goal that we're going after, and then the story gets along pulled pulled along with that in the wake. I, I think all the yeah, greatness that right. is Neuromancer is is you know in the wake of that that plot that is driving forward that we learn as we go. Uh, I mean, we don't learn the whole point of what they're doing. I mean, we uh, Neuromancer is a great book. <laughs> I, it is, uh, um, and he he is very wise to uh, to work work uh, on that book. But I just didn't feel that that compelling. But absolutely, this book is definitely inspired by. By that, I think, and I think you're right that it seems that uh, Rabbit has to be some sort of AI or. or... I think it's inspired by a number of other books as well, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I'm I'm with you, Jesse. This is ultimately there's a pot of gold out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, the, the pun of the title, "Rainbows Do End," don't they? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no apostrophe. Rainbows end. Um, it's a fact, <laughs> but but that's a good thing. It turns out in this book because when you get rid of a, a false promise, 
you find out that you can do it for yourself. Uh, there, there are a couple of other places where I think Vinji draws inspiration. One is obviously Alice in Wonderland. Right, so the the most one of the most poignant human characters in the book is is Alice. It's Robert Goo's daughter-in-law, who is the one in whose life we see um, the real danger of what this new technology can do to us, since she's protecting us from all kinds of terrorists, and she's forced to undergo that just-in-time training that that may boil your mind, that jit, and she's got the jitters. Uh, something which her father-in-law, who previously had had terrible relations with her, ultimately comes to be one of the world's experts in trying to solve, get rid of this jit stuff. Um, but Alice is her name. The rabbit is running around here. We go down into holes all the time. And it seems to me that once you realize that this is an Alice in Wonderland book, and there are direct references to Wonderland as well, we realize that we're in a book in which the entire landscape may be understood as projective reality. Right? It's just mm-hmm. it's a projective reality, which that's it. All of Wonderland is Alice's dream in in Lewis Carroll's novel, and and here we can see that the real action, the place in which if you have a chance to grow up, you're going to do it, is in places of projective reality. There's another kind of projective reality that people are used to using. It's called books. <laughs> And, you know, the main action in this novel takes place fighting over whether or not to destroy the physical existence of the contents of a library and turn it into only the virtual books and make only projective reality the the available reality in the world. So that fight is between two different kinds of realities. And ultimately what Lewis Carroll says is, um, you can come back out of that projective reality and go running off into the sunlight. That is, Alice can. The reader has a much darker view, um, at least an adult reader of those books. This book ends only with the sunny view. And in that sense, I think you're right, that it's a lot easier on us. Um, I heard an interview with Vinji um, in which he said, uh, he, he was asked, um, is this book meant to be an extrapolation from the present? And he said, it certainly is. It's a near-term extrapolation, but he said, it's a very mellow extrapolation, much nicer than anything we're really likely to ever get. So I think he's falling back into the sort of wonderful romance mode, you get to save the universe kind of science mm-hmm. fiction. And, I, and I'm with you personally. I'm more attracted to the harder edge stuff, but I but I can see that this works and it could work for loads of people. The the other main book that I was thinking of as a parallel here is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Um, that which, didn't occur to me. Yeah, and I don't think it will occur to many people, but that's you know I'm weird. Um, <laughs> at the end of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, you may remember Mike the computer that actually has really run the revolution. Um, in theory, there was a distributed cell structure in which the, loony, the loonies uh, rebel against their Earth colonial lords. But in fact, every member of the rebellion who thinks that he's communicating with another human being is actually communicating with a different voice manifested by this one central computer, Mike. And Mike, in fact... Um, helps defend the moon 
when it's attacked by rockets by using the, the launchers to knock down um, the incoming rockets. I think we discussed this before. Um, he says at the end to Manny, the, the human being with whom he does have regular contact, now I know what the word orgasm means. <laughs> so just like in the American Western, after the, the hero settles the hash of the out group, um, Mike is now the biggest, baddest guy in town. And the only way that the loonies are going to be able to flourish is if he goes away. And so he, he's gone. He just, we never hear from him again. He's just, I, I thought he was damaged. I, I thought um, uh, no? the idea was that he lost too much of his, um, his uh, distributed network. And that he was still there, but he wasn't operating. He lost his sentience or whatever it is. Manny says that he think that's how, what Manny hypothesizes. But then since he's the chief computer technician on the moon, he says that he could not find any. I mean, every piece of it got repaired. And it's still right. he wasn't there. And what I have always thought um, is that just as the professor, who is the father figure for Manny, conveniently dies so that Manny then has to take on the adult responsibility of leading the revolution, Mike leaves so that the humans can, in fact, do what they need to do rather than just rely on him. It's a strategic withdrawal. This is, this, uh, by the way, is, is what Judaism says that God does in order to make a place for humanity in the world. Uh, it's called the doctrine of Shinshum. It's uh, self-limitation. Um, and it seems to me that just as the professor and Manny and Mike um, are gone so that it's possible for Manny and humanity to flourish, the end of this book is one where we know that Lena is alive, but the, the letters are never answered. And we have no reason to think that Rabbit is gone but Rabbit is no longer functioning in the lives of these people. So what Vinji has done is given us this double strategic withdrawal of a human being and a computer so that we have the possibility of this forward-looking ending. What if I can have it all? Just the way the moon is a harsh mistress has that forward-looking ending based on Huckleberry Finn, so I'm going to light out for the territories. Heck, I'm only 100 years old. I'm liking it more... <laughs> See, that's it, what happens. Interest it's level going slightly up, <laughs> ratcheting up a little bit. Um, I thought, uh, you know, I knew the Alice in Wonderland idea from the name, and a Bob. I think, I think he was a. I didn't read that other Fast Times at Fairmont High, but I, I believe he's a. That character's a leftover from that original story. But the way their names are placed in the novel. And there's a bunch of other people. It actually reminded me of something that I'm pretty sure was not influenced, but it just reminded me of that. And so I'm going to throw it out there. And that is a, a movie called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. <laughs> you know that 1960s I, oh, I, uh, comedy? I'm old enough to have seen it when I came out, yeah. Yeah. Very sexy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just, Bob and Alice did this, right? And Bob said this to Alice. And it was just like, those are sort of old-fashioned names, and I guess because they've got this association in my mind from that movie. I mean, I know they're family and such, but um, the the book that I – I mean, I, I wanted to say that this was like a combination of Neuromancer and 
uh, a short story I read recently called uh, The Bear Came Over the Mountain by Alice Munro. Anybody read that story? No. Okay. I don't remember. I've read a bunch of her short stories, but it's, uh, I'm not what's sure. this one about? It's about, uh, it's about a, a couple who uh, uh, got married young and have, a, had, have had a life, and now they've uh, gotten into old age, and the wife is beginning to forget um, little things. And she, of course, is suffering from early onset Alzheimer's, or uh, Alzheimer's anyways, and um, the husband's having more and more difficulty taking care of her, so he takes her to a nursing home. And uh, there, he is told he should come back in 30 days, otherwise she won't acclimatize properly, um, because she, she'll, she'll uh, see him uh, every, every day. And when he comes back, if, if, apparently this, this is, uh, I think Alice Monroe is basing it on you know, some real-life experience, because this is my experience as well, is that... Um, People have difficulty acclimatizing uh, if if they have bad memories, but uh, if you let them soak in it for a while, they're okay. And then they, that's what they say to him. They say, "Don't come back tomorrow because if you come back and visit her tomorrow, she'll want you. She'll ask you to take her home, and you can't do that. So it'll actually cause more trauma. So go away for thirty days and come back, and she'll be acclimatized and she'll be in a better headspace." And so he does that. He stays away, very difficult, from his, his wife, who he loves, for 30 days. And when he comes back, he's found that she has a, a boyfriend <laughs> in, this, oh. in this place. And um, she doesn't recognize him as her husband anymore. She recognizes him as a face, and she's very polite to him, but she doesn't know that that's her husband. And so he has to deal with this. And interspersed with this story is... Uh, backstory, and we find out that he has cheated on his wife many times um, uh, as a professor. It's it, it, it's really the prototypical mainstream story, right? And this is the kind of story that I I just don't like to go anywhere near because it it's resolution. All its resolutions are um, emotional and um, humane rather than idea based, right? Uh. And I, I have no problem with, with uh, uh, humane, humane stuff and emotions if I'm getting some ideas along with it. But uh, the difference is Monroe is a very good writer. Um, <laughs> and so even though I don't feel any kind of satisfaction at reading this story, I also appreciate that she, is, uh, she has told it very well, very concisely. She made her point. Um, she's thrown in a, a lot of clever metaphors and uh, convinced the, the reader uh, that uh, her worldview is correct. Um, and that's the difference between the two books, right? Is this, this guy is an unlikable character that we end up liking, right? Robert Gu is uh, deliberately unlikable. Um, and do, does that matter? I don't think it matters. I think you can have an unlikable main character. But, I thought he was the most engaging character in the book. Absolutely. Uh, other than Rabbit, I guess. Yeah, but we don't really get inside Rabbit's head very often. So, yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I didn't find any of the other characters particularly uh, well drawn. I, I think they're not. I think that uh, – I, I agree with you, gentlemen. I think that uh, 
Vinji is thinking through um, so many things and he's sort of doing, oh, I, here's a good idea and I will do this. Um, I can give you some examples of that. But I, I am more positive on his writing. He's not a, he didn't turn out something that is uh, seamless and emotional and, um, and humane uh, the way Monroe virtually always does. Um, mm. But, uh, and, and I think there's a comparison to be made between this book and, uh, and Sawyer's rollback. Another novel. Yeah, in which, that's actually yeah, that's an interesting comparison. You know, uh, right in which Alzheimer gets Alzheimer's gets undone, and we see what that does to the social family relations. Um, but but I'm not as down on on Vinci's writing here as you you are, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. A couple of observations. The first one is that this book is absolutely rife with technical detail laying out all kinds of stuff that in the hands of a lesser writer would just be big steaming mounds of info dump but the way Vinji does it I think it actually sort of becomes part of the novel and in that sense I think he is enormously skillful Another thing that I think is really important is that um, while you say, well, there's nothing wrong with having uh, a nasty main character, um, you're right. In theory, there is nothing wrong with it. But in practice, it's almost impossible to pull off. It's very, very hard to have our main focus be on somebody we find utterly distasteful. And the few examples that I can think of, like... uh, Light in August have have been done by really world. Now this may have to do with my reading, but these have been world class writers who've been able to keep enough of my sympathy with somebody that I dislike that I wind up coming to to want to see his progress, even though he's reprehensible. And so I, I think those two things alone are certainly marks of a kind of excellence, not, not the full blown. Alice Munro, every word fits and it's humanly significant, but still a whole lot better than most of what you find in popular literature. Uh, I, I would much rather read a random uh, Bernavinji novel than, than almost any mainstream book. Uh, but <laughs> I was forced to read this other one. And <laughs> I, I did find, you know, like just in, in the parallel readings that it was very... It was. They were similarly topicked, and of course, the focus is completely different. And uh, because of that, the you know the I, I think there's a movie version of of it. Um, the I haven't seen it yet. It's called uh, After Her. Or is that losing like. her or something? Maybe yeah, something like Sarah yes. Pauly, I think, directed it. Um, and it. I think it's highly rated. It's Canadian uh, drama. You know, yeah. probably probably very well done. Um, I think David Cronen. I think David Cronenberg produced it, um, if I if I'm remembering correctly, which is interesting. As long as we're giving plugs for the Canadian Sawyer, of course, who wrote Rollback, is another Canadian. That's true. Um, uh, and although, oh my God. when Gibson wrote Neuromancer, he was living in Vancouver. Yeah, that's true. He still does. Yes, but he's born in America. But I'm just that's why I put it that way. All all the best Canadians are. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I should have said United States Ian. 
<laughs> oh, that's right. Um, I don't know. Let me give you another book that I think sure. this draws on. Um, I was the only one in the room uh, who had noticed this, but after I said it, everybody nodded. So I don't know if you guys will nod. It's hard to tell on uh, audio conferencing. But the the image of that shredding machine going through the library really quite extraordinary you know with everything being blown into the maw of this thing and all of the internal blades cutting things up into tiny tiny fragments and so on and then being digested and out the other end comes this library you know this thanks to the software out the other end of this this long long huge 10 foot uh, diameter tube comes sort of a deathless library and the reference, in fact, that is made to it um, uh, is Fahrenheit 451. It's it's actually making the books into living things that will go on forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked at that and I thought, this is a sandworm out of Dune. Mm. No, I didn't. I didn't Take get that. All okay. But you, um, if you think about the description of the sandworms going through the sand, eating all of this stuff, and out the other end comes um, comes spice, which allows for virtual immortality, the most valuable uh, the most valuable commodity in the known universe, the uh, the undermining uh, the, the the basis of the economy of Dune and the Dune world. Um, that worm and the worm in the library. Gee, you know, I, I thought it was like a worm. I thought it was a worm gear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's interesting. You know I don't think so. I think I was thinking of it's. A, I was thinking of the Doomsday bit, Machine in the original Star Trek series. Has anybody seen that? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it was written by Norman Spinrad. Yeah, it's basically uh, that. That's that's the Berserkers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a Berserker style uh, Thor. Yeah, you know, Theodore Sturgeon, not Theodore Sturgeon, uh, Saberhagen, Red Saberhagen. Uh, yeah. Getting off topic, but uh, I think I think that okay. makes sense. Yeah, I was struck by that image too. When uh, you know those pieces of paper flying through, and he said, you know, they're the data is taken, you know, through all several different angles, and somehow the software puts it all back together, and um, now you've got a library that exists yeah. for everybody. Yeah, incredible. But um, you know, also, really the, also the image of the the destruction of the past for the future's sake, I guess, was something that's interesting as well. I like that. Mm-hmm. You, you notice, by the way, that the, the the justification again, the info dump avoided the justification for this methodology, the Libraryome project. It is based, in fact, on the Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. which was accomplished by shotgun blasting apart human DNA and then letting the software recompose it so that we wind up having a perfect blueprint of the human genome. So the, the software that comes out of biology that allows us to have a perfect map of life is what's being used here to give us a perfect map of our virtual lives. Um, I think... In a way, if one reads this as a philosophical novel and isn't looking for certain kinds of things having to do with characters, it becomes a much more satisfying book. Well, I, I thought you know that it was really a tempest in a teapot when it comes to you know 
Like, I'm not a big fan of destroying books. I, I never put books in a garbage can. Um, I will go to great lengths to avoid having to damage a book. Um, and I, I'm upset when I see people abusing books. However, um, this is not a, uh, an intellectual thing. When I, I think about it, I mean, most books are meant to be disposable. They're designed to be, you know, last a few reads, and if, if not that many, and then be gone. So when they say this is the best, best method of getting the data cheaply uh, out, of, out of the books, and it's completely and cheaply out of the books, I would say as long as there's other copies in some other library that aren't being chewed up, um, what, what's the problem exactly? Well, um, uh, intellectually, I agree with you, Jesse, but being here at the University of Michigan, which is the lead defendant in the current suit against Google for digitizing all this stuff, um, I can't help but notice that great library collections are not simply the sum of their parts. They are greater than that. They allow, for instance, a kind of random browsing as you walk around mm -hmm. that can't be done just by ordering a single book through interlibrary loan. And the destruction of the contents of the Geisel Library, um, you may remember, we're told in the book, when the question is raised, well, what if the software makes a mistake? You know, this does happen. What if it makes a mistake? And we're told, well, that's why we're doing the same thing to other libraries, right. too, so we have points of comparison. Well, you know, how many, how many villages are we going to destroy to save them? Um, so I think that's part of the issue. But there's, to me, there was, I don't have no idea whether or not Vinci intended this. My guess is that if he, if he noticed it, it was probably what I'm about to say. It was probably, he just smiled and was glad for the coincidence. Um, as you may know, the description of the Geisel Library here is accurate. Um, this is what the Geisel Library looks like on the UCSD campus. And it is called the Geisel Library in honor of the family that made a serious donation, including donating the papers of the guy after whom the library is now named. Um, I don't think it says this in the book, but Theodore Geisel is Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Um, why, and, why, why didn't they call it the Dr. Seuss Library? Well, because it was, made, it was a grant from the estate of Theodore and Florence, or whatever her name is, Geisel. It would have been better. And they better named known. it after the real... It's a cool well, library. it might have been. It is indeed, and it really does look like it's built upside down. It's, it's sort of the, the visual um, counterpart to Pyramid Hill um, in the book. But the, the, the fact of it being Dr. Zeus's library, um, I, I read an interview with him years ago. I'm hoping I'm remembering this right, but he is... You know, just wildly successful as a children's author, and he's written some books for adults, but wildly successful as a children's author, using utter nonsense often to teach very important and, and deep things. I, I hear um, it during hey, World, science War, fiction. World War II. He he did a lot of um, the instruction manuals for for uh, soldiers. So uh, apparently, the indeed the army thought that you know text wasn't good enough and uh, pure picture wasn't good enough, but the comic book style format, a combination of text and pictures, you know, how to clean your, clean your M14 rifle sort of thing, right. uh, was the so best. The had the had the had those That's right. <laughs> Probably with a right. few Actually, less nonsense you, words. 
<laughs> you can get you can get that online. Actually, well, UCSD has a has an online version of uh, of uh, kind of a tribute to uh, Geisel, and you can see his work on Madison Avenue and uh, all sorts of early things. Some of it, naturally, during the World War II era. I'm sorry to say, quite racist, but um, but you can see it nonetheless. Um, but the, in this interview, um, the interviewer asked a question based on a fact I didn't know, and that was, he said. Why is it um, that you, the greatest of all living children's authors, have no children of your own? And Geisel is recorded to have answered, I do what I like. You have them, I'll amuse them. <laughs> That's my policy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I there is something finally divorced from the biological in that idea of childhood and that idea of the future. And it seems to me that although this is a sunny book in many regards, and certainly I think asks us to end with a sunny viewpoint, um, that sunny viewpoint depends on a willingness to give up the biological. That it's going to work out if Robert doesn't reconnect with Lena. Um, that the main characters who actually undergo any change are the quite young and the sort of comparatively old. And the middle adults are really uninteresting and just keep going on about their business. Um, this is uh, this is a more cerebral book than I think ultimately I would like, which is again why I guess, like you, Jesse, I prefer Neuromancer, which is so visceral. Uh, you know, uh, that's a good one for it. Um, the other thing that uh, the book instantly reminded me of, and I guess I sort of forgot it as I went through, uh, was The Gravy Planet. Um, uh, what's the other so, name for that? The Space Merchants. Um, it's got, it's, it's advertising. Oh, you mean Gravy Planet, right. Yeah, right. It's the, it's the story of, of the, uh, the, the search for control over uh, perfect control over consumers and uh, in a, in a great way that isn't ex really ex explicated in the book. Um, this is a, a true dystopia um, in the sense that there are no user serviceable parts inside. Everybody is, is you know, <laughs> making, uh, and I thought this is actually what you were going to come, come bring to the table was that uh, instead of, you know, writing an essay or, uh, I don't know, um, doing a dissertation, uh, students are making YouTube videos uh, using, remixing, you know, three licensed products um, and that, calling that their homework. Um, because that's what they do, right? Instead of that, that, that nice scene where we get that pure poetry reading, um, he gets... Uh, the, the technology of sort of a very uh, YouTube-style comment <laughs> poured on his head, you know? Somebody right. somebody uh, has a bird shit on his head while he's reading his, uh, at the end of his poem, that was effective, that, that did uh, move students. And, and I was thinking, well, if you look at the world that, that uh, Robert Gu has come into, everything's licensed, Right? Everything's transactional. Everything is um, 
controlled. And in a way, they managed to, and this is what DRM is really about, is uh, turn what is sort of a, a private copying scheme into everything, not just you know, the, the media that you consume, but the world that you live in. Everybody wears in this world, right? And the, the few people who don't, the guy who carries the laptop around and, and Robert Gu while he's carrying <laughs> that uh, piece of Fold's cap, um, everybody who isn't wearing uh, is left out of the great thing that everybody's doing, which to me sounded really not that great. I, I mean, I, I like... Lovecraft, and I like, uh, I don't really like um, Terry Pratchett, but that, I have no problem with people liking Terry Pratchett. But the fact that they want to make the whole, their whole lives long, to me, sounds like uh, a, a dystopic world to me. I really don't want to do that. What I did like was that university seemed, uh, or high school seemed a lot like university. What do you think <laughs> about that, guys? Well, I noticed I that even that, the uh, uh, machine parts have certificates inside just so they can work with each other. It's like everything is DRM down to the bone, and then when the uh, certificate is revoked at the end, it's like total. The world starts coming, coming apart. Starts coming apart, and that's that was the hope. Uh, you know, the, like if that had been, um, I guess, set up a little better at the beginning, I think I, I would have had much much more satisfaction seeing that what is an apparent utopia, um, which is actually a dystopia that every everybody's sunny in. I mean. If you think about where the story is set, it's, it's supposed to be set all around the world. And there's a couple of scenes, uh, you know, in Europe, and there's maybe, I don't know if there's a scene in India, but it's really, it's, it's a California book. It's a California book. And, and uh, a lot of the, the laws and the certificates and all that stuff, I think, God damn, this is a real dystopia. It's just these people don't see it. Um. I I don't know what's conscious in Vinci's mind as an author and what I can just I can notice on the page. But Robert Gu, we are told as a poet, was not simply a good poet, he was an astonishing genius. I mean he was head and shoulders above his contemporaries. He was something, someone with, with a gift beyond control, beyond DRM. And just as that student production um, is praised when it's demonstrated to an audience, when Robert Gu is asked to do some poetry, he does it and he's praised. And the young student is absolutely blown away when he hears the way Robert Gu can use words. But Vinji shows us Robert Gu hating the fact something that second rate from his viewpoint can be powerful to the world. At the end of this novel, he has not regained his power of poetry, but it turns out he has become an extraordinary intuitive computer programmer who in fact is wanted to be able to overcome exactly the things that prevent the possibility of true human communication. He's the one who looks like he may 
get us past the, the problems with jitter and lag so that with haptics, we really can all reach out and touch each other. Now, that's too sunny an ending in some senses, I understand. But the fact that this enormous spark that Robert Gu had has been returned in this new world, not as a poet, but as a programmer, suggests to me that Vinji somewhere, whether consciously or unconsciously, knows that mere remixing is not in fact enough. You need this other thing. And the one who has a chance to do it is not just a hack. It's uh, it's not even a clever remixer. It's somebody who can get beyond what we can just explain. And that's what Robert Gu is at the end. I don't think this book would work for me at all if I didn't have a discussion. <laughs> um, actually, uh, when I read this book the first time, I got like two-thirds of the way through, and I, I just put it down. I, I just got lost in it. But it's only uh, this time when I pushed myself to the end that I saw how everything tied together that I ended up liking it a lot more. But in the beginning, all I really liked was the Robert Goo experience. And then when it veered away from that, I, I lost interest. Hmm. But now I like it a lot better. How is Goo spelt? I, I, I listened to the audio book. Is, is it Gio? Okay. Because I, I was thinking like Goo Goo Gaga. You know, like he's, he's I, I, didn't, I didn't realize until quite late into the book that he, I think they said there was a handsome Chinese man. And I think, oh, that's our main character. <laughs> um, because I thought Scott was making a pun earlier on in our conversation when he I said think, Robert, Robert Goo was the Robert Goo was the thing, the character that cemented the book together. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Goo. <Glue. laughs> uh, unintentional. <laughs> Let me try another English teacher thing on you. Um, I, 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 you guys, I mean, you're you're all uh, avid readers, so you may know this. Um, a term in uh, in criticism, one a word that's not used very much this way um, at all uh, in ordinary language. The word apostrophe mm. in poetry means a speech made to an absent individual. So um, the beginning of an epic poem where the speaker says something like, oh, muse, please bless my efforts so that I may tell the story of so-and-so and so-and-so. That, that address to the muse who isn't there, but one hopes that the muse somehow will hear what's being spoken, that's an apostrophe. Okay, so strophe means a turn as in a turn of phrase. Apo means away from. So this turn outward. This, that's an apostrophe. And that's why an apostrophe is, the, the, the mark is called an apostrophe. It's a little turn outward that sits on the page. Um, at the, the last chapter of this book is called Rainbow's End. It uses the same title as the book as a whole. And one of the points made in that chapter is that Robert Gu has noticed that this old age home where he had been and where Lena now is, is called Rainbow's End without an apostrophe. And, of course, the obvious thing to notice is that instead of saying this is the end that belongs to the rainbow, meaning it's a pot of gold, it can be a statement that rainbows end, the beauty leaves the sky. But it's also a way of saying to us, there's no apostrophe. It doesn't get heard. And that... Mm. Whether Lena is there nice. or not, you don't get the answer back. Hmm. 
And I, I think that Vinci is playing with an awful lot of these literary and cultural and science fictional devices to make a much more intellectual kind of novel than most of us are used to. And so seeing it as that kind of novel, I think it gets to be quite a good one. <laughs> that's a that's a very nice find. I I I mean I I knew that the title was playing a game. Um <laughs> Uh, and I thought that it was a, it was a, it was cute, but I think that that's an extra cuteness that you found that does does make me like it all the more. <laughs> There's something he taught me about language. I, I had never, well, I guess we all know it, but but I had never made it conscious before. Um, you know, this book is full of neologisms and uh, and uh, transformed language, um, where the language did mean one thing and now it means something else. Um, like it says, you know, he had terrible personal hygiene, so it was easy to hack him. Well, obviously, personal <laughs> hygiene has changed from bathing to safe computing practices. Uh, that's what I mean by transform mm-hmm. language. But the way he uses the verb to wear, you know, are you wearing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Made me realize that, and I, I gave it a name, there is a whole category of grammatical form, which I'm, I'm calling the absent transitive. Right, so if you have a transitive verb like, um, I ride bicycles. Okay? If somebody says to you, I remember this happened to me, um, I was in college and I was talking to, but I did not come from a wealthy background, but lots of people in my college did. And uh, someone asked me if I ride. And I, we were in a car at the time. So it was obvious that I, I was riding. So I said, you mean like a bicycle? <laughs> and, and the person said, no, 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 horses. And you know, I mean, no one in my life had ever asked me if I rode horses. And, and why would anyone ride a horse? I grew up in Brooklyn. You know, so, uh, but when they say, do you ride? And they mean, do you ride horses? That suggests a social class. That is, if you leave off the transitive, it tells you something about the lived context in which it functions. When people complain that they need to get a second opinion because surgeons cut, cut is a transitive verb. And by leaving off, by having the absent transitive, you know, the absent object, it suddenly makes you have to have in your head the whole context within which that thing is functional. So all, all police language is like that, right? Oh, say more. Oh, well, um, uh, if you, if you, uh, you can see it on cop shows, um, where they, you know, is he using? <laughs> right? Oh, right. Uh, um, right. Are you uh, packing? Are you packing? Uh, you got anything that's going to stick me? Uh, well, I guess that one's a little <laughs> more specific, right. but when they talk to each other, um, I discharge my weapon. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all sort of, um, uh, there's a, oh, okay, that's slightly different, but yeah. The police language tends to be full of this uh, jargon, jargony sort of uh, assumptions, shorthands. Exactly. And, and, and it's only shorthand. I mean, it's not shorthand because the, 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 the speaker and the listener both are expected to understand the nature of the social context within which they're having their communication. If you don't have that context shared, in order to understand this, the communication, you have to create that context in your head, and you do it automatically, as you do it without 
you know, saying, I need to build this, I need to build that. Now, that famous line, you know, um, we, I think, discussed this previously, you know, Heinlein was asked, how do you write good science fiction? And he quotes from the, uh, he gives a line that's almost like his beginning from uh, Door Beyond Summer, um, where uh, it says, you know, he walked the, walked through the door and it dilated closed behind him or something like mm-hmm. that. And that word dilated automatically implies all of the other things that must be different between that world and ours. Um, it has enough power to have powerized doors. You don't have to worry about the shape of them. So there's a lot of I mean, all things about richness, technological advancement, and so on are implicit in that. But grammatically, it dilated shut behind him uh, or closed behind him is perfectly ordinary. But leaving out the, transi- the object of the transitive verb which is done is not ordinary. It's only ordinary if you're in a given context. And Vinci has pulled that off here with his, his use of the word where. And it is, to my mind, as I read it, the single verb that he uses again and again in this consistent way to make his reader be complicit in having to flesh out a sense of how that world is and how it's different from the world we inhabit. I thought that was a very, very clever use of a new kind of language. Absolutely. Uh, in, in a way, uh, it's, uh, you know, the book by William Gibson called uh, Virtual Light. It's uh, one of my more, uh, one of the ones I like a lot more of his later books. Huh. Uh, it's sort of, I guess, in the middle of his career now. Or maybe near the beginning. It's hard to say, <laughs> um, but it's a it's a it's about a guy who who finds a pair of or a girl I can't remember who finds a pair of sunglasses that uh, allow them to see the all the all the it's like Google 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 goggles you know um, allows <laughs> you to see all the things that are going on underneath the world in the way that the characters in this book do, but. Mm-hmm. But in that book, it's novel, right? The character has just discovered this pair of sunglasses that allow them not only to look cool, <laughs> but to to look deeply, right? Uh, right, at all the things that are happening that aren't seen. And um, and in this book, it's become you know old old hat. Everybody's doing it, and because we've got the the character who's come out of a out of a, a funk of uh, no, unconsciousness or no no mind no mindedness, he's he's uh, he's. It's novel to him. Yeah, it's novel to him, and he, but they're all soaking in it, right? Um, and and that that was definitely that was definitely good. Uh, oh, yeah. And that that is definitely one of the things that this novel can be remembered for is that it it is proposing a very possible future. Um, with you know everybody having an iPhone with them at all times, they're uh, much more able to do. Th- I mean, there is an app called Google Goggles, right? Right. It doesn't work great yet, but I I can't imagine it not working great in ten years. There's another one called Layers, L A Y A R S, that does a similar thing and actually works. It doesn't work as well as Google Goggles for some things. It doesn't do translation for you, but it. Um, is like Yelp. It's full of all kinds of um, 
user-generated info. So you walk walk along in a major city and turn layers on something, and you get all kinds of commentary from people who've been there before and tagged it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it so in that sense, it does work. Um, I, I think you're right. Vinci is is really pushing. Well, pushing is wrong, uh, but he's really demonstrating a view of the world as enabled by these technologies. Um, there's a reference in this. Um, it's on 364. Um, the question: What do you think your talent, and your malev- Do you think your talent and your malevolence were a package deal? Sharif is asking Goo, and he says, "Or was." Was the change as in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, with new experience making you kindlier? And I can't help but think in that one of you know so many literary references. A Christmas Carol, remember that Scrooge gets three different visions, right? Each of which is false. They are not the actual world. And he has a guide in each of these, which is, if you like, an avatar. Maybe the ghost of Marley is one, but the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas future are just, you know, spiritual concoctions. You know, there, there is no human being behind these things, but by undergoing these virtual experiences, he becomes a better person. Now, it turns out that Rabbit, who is the the guiding intelligence behind all of this to the extent that there is a successful one, and certainly he's successful enough to stop Albert Vaz from destroying the world, um, is also known as the mysterious stranger. And when he gets called the mysterious stranger, Rabbit thinks, ah, you got my name right on the first try. (laughs) Well, the mysterious stranger is, in fact, a novel by Mark Twain. And, you know, capital M, capital T, Mysterious Stranger, Stranger, sorry, capital S. And in The Mysterious Stranger, which exists in more than one edition, he never actually published a definitive edition of it. But in The Mysterious Stranger, the title character is named Satan. Mm. Except it's not the one we think about. It's his sinless nephew. It's his pure nephew who still is an angel because since he was pure and didn't rebel, he wasn't cast out of heaven. And he comes down to earth in order to show people what they need to do. And in one of the versions of the novel, he, he creates a kind of double for every person so that they can see the duality of their own souls by looking at themselves in both themselves and their projected selves. And the whole point of this is so that this pure angel can get people to realize things so that they will become better and have a better life. So That's his last novel, too, apparently. Yeah. So you know, the fact that Rabbit is also uh, the mysterious stranger and acknowledges it suggests that he is not human, that the creator of projective experiences, like the poet, Robert Goo, or like the computer programmer to be Robert Goo, the creator of projective experiences, like the computer scientist Werner Vinge, is act or the writer Werner Vinge, are actually giving us ways of looking at what it means to be human so that we can become kindlier, so that we can learn to stand on our own, so that we will understand other people's feelings and respect them and move on to make a better world. Is this a, an iffy proposition? Hell yes. The library has riots outside it, and the path leading to the library is consistently referred to as the snake of knowledge. You know, that 
curved path going up to the, the children's book library, guys, the library. It's the snake of knowledge. Well, you want to get knowledge? You wind up having to deal with serpents. That's what the old story tells us. But maybe we'll become better people if we stop being completely obedient and take responsibility for making love and families. So well, you're saying we are all Robert Koo. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I were that talented. <laughs> I think I think this book now gets a thumbs up, but only if it gets a discussion. <laughs> and that's exactly what I meant when I when I told you guys what happened at the reading group. We had to affiliate with uh, Eric Rapkin, and then. We it doesn't. Work. It doesn't work on its own. I don't think you. I. I assume you don't have all of these these uh, these uh, interpretations and uh, ideas uh, flowing out without the, without the actual discussion. Do you? You can't do it just on paper. I have a lot of them in my notes. I always take notes when I read. I mean, it's a lot. Many well, I wanted to ask you that. Are typed up in my index that I have glued into the front of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have glued it into the back of the book, but in my copy, there's a picture of Werner Vinge himself, and I didn't want to cover that. All right. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I listen in my car, but then I miss things. But if I take notes at home, I, I really uh, catch more. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you did the same thing. Me, I, I don't. I don't do audiobooks. For that very reason, okay. I, I, for me, the reading experience is not as engaging as I like it to be if I can't also be, be writing things down and checking things and so on as I go. But, but that's me. Some, some books don't work nearly as well as uh, audiobooks uh, for, for making notes purposes. But um, I find that if, if I do need to make a note, I, I can just pause the book and, and make a note. You know, it's got it's got a uh, yeah got a, a note note taking f- function built into it, Tama. <laughs> Your iPhone. Yeah, but I might cause a traffic jam if I do that. Ah. <laughs> oh well. Wait a minute. Uh, whoa, I've never tried. If you're listening to an i to an audio book on an iPhone, you can pause it and add a note to that part of the, the ah, book. No, you, you know, an, an iPhone has a note. A oh note, yes. Note taking function. You just switch so, the note pad yeah. up. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, or I have. Or you I, have the Notepad app out handy, or or you can make voice, you know, things or whatever, whatever you like. Right. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm That'd currently cool, uh, reading something in i in the iBook app, um, which is very very rare for me. But I'm reading Spoon River anthologies, so I can read a page at a time, and it's self-contained. So you know, it's good for the grocery store line, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and you know, and you can make a note on an individual page there. So that I can I can associate my note with the text that the note refers to, the way you could with a Kindle or a Nook. Uh, can you do that with an audio book, or you're just saying you can no. pause it and no. take a note? No, just use no, another app. Uh, yeah, there would be. I, I mean, there there should be, and I'm sure Kindle has some sort of thing that you could do this where you can make the audio book with the text as well. I mean that that is. Uh, nice to have. Then I wouldn't have to ask questions like, how do you spell Robert Goo? <laughs> yeah, it sure is nice to have a book scanned in where you can just uh, search through it as opposed to having the paper book Absolutely. where you have to kind of page around. So there, there's pros and cons to each. Yeah. One of the things that I found uh, amusing and, uh, and true in Rainbow's End 
is that the classes weren't in things that we would think of as subjects. They were in things like search strategies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm teaching a course this semester, a lab course called Technology in the Humanities, where um, the students, among other things, have got to gather their materials from heaven knows where, uh, rather than giving them um, a list of their sources, uh, I wind up teaching them search strategies, and then they pick their subjects and have to use those strategies to go out and find what they need to find. Um, Vinji has given us a world where the actual facts don't really warrant retention. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't remember phone that numbers anymore. No. Yeah, that's what our world is turning into, which is how, how well can you Google as opposed yeah. to what do you know? I I'll tell you, in the, in, the, in the computer fixing world, you know, that's for sure I do a lot of that. You know, if, if someone comes to me with an error that I've never seen before, I go to Google and I type that error in. tells me how to fix it, and I fix it, and they think I'm brilliant. Yeah, I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you have to. There's no way you can know well, all of it. What Tama, we call the, you, the smart internet people. Tama, <laughs> were you the guy who sent me the thing the other day? Uh, uh, a feature said, let me Google that for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can have this animation, Google something, just to be sarcastic with someone and say, hey, just Google it yourself. There's a site called let me Google that for you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. My <laughs> mother, who is uh, in her mid-80s and uses her computer only to play solitaire, um, whenever she's got a question she, that she just can't answer on her own, she calls me and says, Eric, I'm sorry to bother you, but I know you have the answer to everything in your computer. Would you please <laughs> tell me? And, you know, so she calls me from 600 miles away. I Google the answer, or if Google is the appropriate source. You have the patent, Google. <laughs> Beg your pardon? You have the patent on Google. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's not an authorized <laughs> user. <laughs> no user serviceable parts inside. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, th th you see uh, what I mean about the book being different depending upon how you read it. That if, mm -hmm. you, if, you, if you come to it bringing all this other stuff with it, it turns out to be a very different kind of experience. Um, Depends on your belief circle. <laughs> well, there's another good example. Um, I thought, maybe I'm mistaken, maybe I read, maybe I read Snow Crash too long ago, uh, not Snow Crash, The Diamond Age too long ago, but it seemed to me that we have those tribes in The Diamond Age that um, are sort of subterranean and have their own beliefs and work toward the possible undermining of the order of the world as we know it. And what we get in this book is those belief circles. And finally, when Robert Gu goes back to the library, he finds that one of his co-conspirators has actually now become the he has many titles, as he says, um, and they function because he is the link between two belief circles that had been opposing before. So again, we have uh, something that you can see being handled in earlier science fiction, and Vinji is putting his own take on it. Uh, Stevenson sees that as a threat to the order, these people's coming together, groups of people coming together with their own beliefs, and Vinji shows us that 
it is possible, though there's some violence along the way. It's not a smooth path, but it's possible to take these groups of their disparate beliefs and get something out of it. Um, I don't know, Vinji, but I would guess that I am. There's some. There's a strange political echo in here too. Um, you know, the, the the second nastiest guy in the book is Winston Blount, right? Mm-hmm. And he used to be the dean, and uh, then it turns out that he is fighting in the revolution to stop the library ohm. And at the, in the epilogue, it turns out that. He's finally gotten a job. He's an administrative assistant, an entry-level administrative assistant back in the college he used to be a dean of. <laughs> but we're told that there is no ceiling to how far an administrative assistant can go these days. So he's kind of made this turnaround starting out new. And I thought to myself, Winston Blount, Winston Blount. How, what na- I know that name from somewhere. Wow, so, wow. So I looked it up. And guess who that guy was? Who? Huh. Remember when George W. Bush was running for office the, for presidency the first time and much was made of the fact that when he was in the National Guard, presumably, you know, as, as opposed to going to Vietnam as the, his detractors say he should have, um, Daddy arranged for him to be posted to, I forget, I guess Alabama maybe, where in effect, instead of going to guard meetings, he was functioning full-time as an aide in a Senate campaign for a buddy of his dad's, and the Senate campaign failed. But the senator he worked for, the deeply conservative right-wing senator that George W. Bush worked for rather than putting in his military service, was Winston Blount. Hmm. So they're saying it's a, it's a real person or a... I'm saying that there is a real person named Winston Blount, historically, whom the real George W. Bush really worked for. And I'm saying that Werner Vinge has named his character with the name of this guy. And as with so many other things in this book, you could take really nasty swipes at it, like having the bird poop on, you know, in that remix. But ultimately, Vinci sort of wants things to be rehabilitatable. And even though Winston Blount has to start at the bottom and he can't be up on his high intellectual horse, he's got a career path in front of him. Um, And I I don't think that, even if it is accidental that he's picked up the name from this failed Senate candidate who was figured large in George W. Bush's life at one point, I think it is of a piece with the idea that people keep improving. I mean, Miri, for instance, who's a delightful character in many ways, although not well drawn, um, Miri works her way toward, you know, uh, having a sexual awakening. She works her way toward getting past trying to hide under her too large body. I mean, there's a, a growth for her. And I think, I think, most of these characters show some kind of growth. Even even Lena um, shows growth by allowing Robert to to know that she's alive. Um, and and I can't help but wonder about I don't know how to pronounce it. Chu Chang, you know the the physicist who lives with Lena, um, and she just disappears at the end of the novel. And uh, we hear a sequel is in the works from Vinji, but that's oh, no. been years coming. Um, what happens to her? And you, you kind of have to hope it's growth. I mean, she doesn't go away to be a nasty person. 
rabbit doesn't go away to destroy the world. Um, it's a Rainbow's End is a pot of gold here in a way. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of disorganized. Or else you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> I, I didn't hear that. It's it's just a lot of change coming, and you better adapt to it, or else you're going to be stuck. Um, Zhu Zhang was the one that invented a secure hardware environment, and now she's just like a high schooler, having right. to relearn, relearn something new. Right. But I mean, she is doing it. Yeah, I think that you you know you could. So one of one of the unrealistic sort of maybe hopefully realistic things is the you know taking an Alzheimer's brain and turning it into a a, a restored version. Um, I, I think the the way Vinji gets around this is by saying it doesn't work for everybody. Right? It right. seems to work. It seems to work well for a lot of people, and it works for Robert Goo pretty well, right. except for the fact that he he can't be a poet anymore. It's uh, a heavenly minefield. Okay. Wow, right. That's chapter yeah. 3's title. All right. Oh, Minefield Made in Heaven. Okay. So the the uh the the fact that that we've got this technology that uh, remakes people, but then they still it's like they're being reborn again with somebody else's new memories. They have to go back to school, right? They have to start again. Um I'm I'm not sure. I think that's probably the least realistic part of the of the book. But it it feels like good futurism in the sense that it's it's just projecting like William Gibson does, um, at least the, the technological end. It is um, a science fiction dream for a long time, right? I mean, in the city and the stars. Sure. You know, you walk into the hall of creation and you come out a random number of years later healthy 21 years old and having to learn all over again with a whole new bright future in front of you with no mother or father exactly <laughs> nobody to bother you nobody to actually, bother you which is the case for the people in this book too that's right right even I'm though actually, Mary lives at home she's clearly on her own she can do what she needs um, her her friend uh, what is it uh, Juan is Juan the name of the, the boy yes. um, you know he clearly on his own um, yeah, there's a teacher there, Ms. Chumlig, who's clearly watching over them like a fairy godmother, uh, or as the great lizard. Um, she's benevolent, childless on her own. Um, there's this, this world in which the intergenerational power relations are really ideal from the standpoint of an adolescent. You, you have people trying to protect you and watching over you, but keeping out of your way, and ultimately, you're the one who has to save the world. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.